June 14th, 2018 is a, is a date that is forever etched in the annals of sports history. Because June 14th, 2018 is the date, of course, click me one time there, Sid, and this thing will wake up. That is the date that Jerry Corderette and Michael Todd fought the longest round in professional arm wrestling history. These two men, champions in their own right, they held that stalemate position. That's actually a video of the match right there. They held that position for a world record seven solid minutes. And that, that's true. I cannot imagine the amount of pain. I would, seven minutes would be a long time to hold there like that. that. It was the trench warfare of professional arm wrestling. Now, who won? Who cares? You've never heard of either of these guys. You do, and neither have I. I could tell you which one won. You don't even know which one he is. Neither do I. I can't even tell you, but that's what they did. The reason I bring that up is because over the last few chapters, the Apostle Paul has been describing for us something of a stalemate, something of a standoff. At least it seems like that. In this corner, from Romans chapter 9, Paul told us, introduced to us the, the sovereign election of God by which God chose the nation of Israel to be his special people and he promised to save Israel. So God's election of Israel to be saved is in this corner. And in this corner, wearing the blue trunks and hailing from Romans chapter 10, we have Israel's stubborn refusal of Jesus Christ. Israel's stubborn refusal to accept the rescue that God only offers through the sacrifice of his son. Do you see the sort of stalemate there? God promised to save Israel. God promised to only save people through the sacrifice of Jesus. So what wins? What gives? That's what we want to find the answer to in today's passage. And we want to find the answer to this too. Why should we even care? That's where we're headed. Let's read our passage this morning. This is Romans chapter 11. We're going to read the first 10 verses. In the New American Standard Bible, they read this way. I say then... God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How Elijah pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response? How did God respond to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 
people or men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Verse 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. There's our passage today, and Paul starts Romans chapter 11, where again, he's trying to answer this question, what wins in this apparent stalemate between God's sovereign election of Israel and decision to save Israel versus Israel's refusal to accept the only means through which God saves anyone? What wins? Paul answers the question right away. He states, what, what it's sort of the thesis statement of today's sermon, but, but really the entire rest of this section, which is all of chapter 11. Here it is in verse 1. Paul asks the question, God has not rejected his people, has he? Answer, absolutely not. And then he restates that in sort of thesis statement format. The beginning of verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So, Answer the question, in this stalemate between God's decision to save Israel and Israel's decision to reject Jesus, what wins? God wins. God is going to save Israel. Paul tells us right from the jump. Now I want you to know, even though he doesn't use the word Israel here, this his people and his people whom he foreknew, That's 100% absolutely about Israel. Um, Even people who believe different things about the church in Israel than I do all agree that this is about, this part here is about Israel. Um, In Amos, God said, you only, Israel, have I known, foreknown, chosen. And that's what Paul is, is referring to here. So God is going to save Israel. I've told you that he he promised this throughout the Old Testament. I don't think I've ever shown you from the Bible. So let's be Berean about this. I want to show you just one place in the Old Testament where God promises to save Israel this morning. It's a little bit long. It's all I could fit on the screens from Isaiah 43. So this is way after King David, way before Jesus. And this is what Israel is promised. This is a promise of God to save Israel. Now, this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, O Jacob, and formed you, O Israel. Don't be afraid, for I will protect you. I call you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'm with you. When you pass through the streams, they're not going to overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not harm you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Deliverer. Since you are precious and special in my sight and I love you, I'll hand over other people in place of you. 
nations in place of your life. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. From the east I'll bring your descendants. From the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, hand them over. And to the south, don't hold any back. Bring my sons from distant lands and my daughters from the remote regions of the earth. Everyone who belongs to me, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed, yes, whom I made. There is God promising. I know it's bad right now, Israel. I'm going to save you. I'm going to save Israel. Now, does this mean every uh, Jewish person, every Israelite person who lives is going to be in heaven someday just because they're related to Jacob? No, Paul's already covered that. In the same way, this is about the nation of Israel. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Does that mean any uh, Israelite person in Isaiah's day could jump into their fireplace and not get burned? No. Maybe they tried it. I don't know. It didn't go well for them, though. Because this is a promise to a nation of people that God's going to save a nation of people. God will accept God will save Israel even though Israel continues to reject God. And in the rest of this passage, Paul wants to explain why, that, why we can be sure that is so. And he wants us to know it's always been that way between God and Israel. See, it's, it's tempting. Paul knew it was tempting in Paul's day. To look around the church, the people who have been rescued by the blood of Jesus, and see almost everyone in the church is Gentile. There's very few Jewish people, and there's more and more Gentiles coming in all the time. And it's very easy for people to think, well, God's obviously done with Israel. They rejected Jesus. That was the last straw. God has moved on to a different people. Paul says, not a chance. Here's how you know. Paul's going to call two witnesses to the stand in this passage to testify that God's not done with Israel and God has, is not treating Israel any differently now than he ever has in the past. So his first witness he calls to the stand is Paul himself. Oh, that's why I put this back up here. So verse 1 starts this way. So I ask, God hasn't rejected his people, Israel, has he? Absolutely not. And then Paul says, I'm going to take the stand to testify that that is true. For I too am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. That's how you know God's not done with Israel. Paul... Uh, had a tendency at times to remind people of sort of his Jewishness. He told the, the Philippians, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the Jewish sort of Jew. I'm a Pharisee. And Paul seems to say here, if you think God is through with Israel, how do you explain me? Do you know the story of how Paul became a Christian? You ever hear that story? I think it is important to this argument. 
See, Paul had a previous career. His Hebrew name is Saul. He's from a town called Tarsus. And Saul, or Paul's previous career, was as a Christian hunter. He wanted to eradicate the Roman world of Christianity. He hated Jesus. He hated Jesus' followers. And a funny thing happened on the road to Damascus one day. Uh, This is Luke, the author of the book of Acts, tells us this story of Paul's conversion. And Paul used to tell this story all the time. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, that's the apostle Paul, still breathing out threats to murder the Lord's disciples. That's, That's not friendly to Christianity, right? He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, that's what Christianity used to be called, if I find any Christians, men or women, he could bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So that's Paul's career. But as he was going along approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you persecute Christians, you persecute me. And so Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he replied, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. And guess what? I'm not dead. I didn't stay dead. I'm still very much alive. I'm the God of the universe. You stand up and enter the city of Damascus, and somebody's going to tell you what I want you to do. You work for me now, bub. And from that moment on, I'll be darned, Paul was a Christian. He believed in Jesus. That's the story of how Paul became a Christian and became Jesus' hand-picked apostle, um, emissary, ambassador to non-Jewish people, to Gentiles. So how does that story, and Paul just saying, look, if God was going to reject Israel, how do you explain me? Here's his argument. Paul says, if God was going to reject Israel for rejecting Jesus, what am I doing here? If God was going to reject Christians because they rejected, excuse me, if God was going to reject Israel because they rejected Jesus, God wouldn't have, God wouldn't be extending his invitation to become a Christian through me. He would have started his rejection of Israel with me because nobody rejected Jesus harder than me. Nobody hated Jesus more than me. And he came and got me and made me believe in him and follow him. Because God will keep his promise to save Israel someday, Paul is like a preview of the conversion of Israel. Someday, someday, Israel is going to, as a nation, as a whole, is going to convert to believing in Jesus. And it's going to look like Paul's conversion to Jesus. Like they're going to have no choice but to believe. 
Right? I, I'm not going to get out the charts and the book of Revelation and Daniel and do all these things. But someday, Jesus himself is going to make it so clear to Israel that he's the king and the Messiah and the Christ and they've been wrong that they're going to have no choice but to believe in Jesus. Just like Jesus did with Paul. Okay, I do want to take you one place and show you a preview of Israel believing in Jesus someday from the Old Testament. One more long passage. It's so long I had to cut a bunch of verses out because it's like three chapters long. This is from the prophet Zechariah. This is in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years before Jesus, Zechariah says this about Israel. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I'm going to pour out the spirit of grace and supplication. So check this out. They, that's Israel, they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who's that sound like? Jesus. This was written before Jesus. But one day Israel is going to look on Jesus and they're going to mourn for Jesus like you would mourn for an only son who has died. And they're going to weep bitterly over him like the weeping of a firstborn who has died. That's going to happen someday. How's it going to happen? Well, in that that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. And in that day, his, that's this one whom they have pierced, his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives is going to be split in the middle from the east to the west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half is going to move toward the south. Does that sound like a big deal? Sounds like a big deal. And when Israel sees that, they're going to say, I think we've been wrong about this Jesus guy. (laughs) And they're going to believe in Jesus and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one His name will be the only one, like the only one people worship. That's what the conversion of Israel is going to look like one day. And it's similar to what the conversion of Paul looked like on that day. Supernatural experience, no choice. You are going to believe because I say so. Now, for most of the rest of us, we filthy Gentiles... That's not how we get converted to Christ. We listen to someone like Paul explain the gospel. We believe it. We cry out to Jesus and he saves all those who believe. So that's witness number one. God hasn't rejected Israel even though Israel has rejected Jesus. How do we know? Paul says, because I'm here. Because I'm here. God would have started the rejection of Israel with me because nobody rejected Jesus harder than I did. That's witness number one. Now, Paul climbs down from the witness stand, calls witness number two up into the dock, and it's the prophet Elijah. Elijah uh, was a prophet of God. Um, his, his story is found in First Kings. Um, in the book of First Kings, it's great. Read it. I can't read uh, the whole thing to you, but 
I, I have to give you a little bit of information so that we can understand Elijah's testimony and how it supports this idea that God hasn't rejected Israel. He's going to save Israel. Um, he says, do you know what the scriptures say about Elijah and how he pled with God against Israel? Do you know? Well, if you don't, I better tell you. So here's the story, the very the Cliff's Notes version of it. Elijah was a prophet in Israel when the king was a guy named Ahab, who was a terrible king. His wife, the queen, was a cheery little lass named Jezebel. Okay? And following the example of Ahab and Jezebel, almost everyone in Israel didn't even worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, anymore. They worshiped this fake God named, we usually say it Baal, it's right here, B-A-A-L, it's probably something like Baal. But however you say it, most people in Israel worshipped a God that wasn't the God of Israel. And so God encourages or directs Elijah to set up this showdown between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal, the God of Ahab and Jezebel and everybody else. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but I'll tell you it wasn't much of a contest. Okay, God wins the contest like who's more powerful, Yahweh the God of Israel or Baal, in a blowout. Okay? And Ahab and Jezebel are so angry at Elijah for humiliating them and killing a bunch of the prophets of Baal that they vow, we promise, if it's the last thing we ever do, we're going to kill Elijah. And that was no idle threat because they'd already killed all of the rest of the prophets of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And that's where we pick up Elijah's story. Elijah's so scared, he runs for his life, he hides, and he gets very, very depressed. And God visits him and starts talking to him and basically says, Elijah, what's wrong? And Elijah says, what do you mean what's wrong? Here's where we pick it up. He says, Lord, haven't you been paying attention? They've killed all the rest of your prophets. They've demolished your altars so like nobody could even go to church to worship you if they wanted. I am the only one left and they're about to kill me too. What do you mean what's wrong? And Paul says, but what did God say in response to Elijah? Here's what he said. Elijah, you're wrong. You're wrong in saying you're alone. I have kept for myself 7,000 people who have never worshipped Baal. I just feel directed to take a time out here and say something before I tell you how this fits into our argument. So this is, this is a time out. Side topic. Was Elijah a tremendous man of God? Could he call the fire down from heaven to consume a soaked sacrifice? Yes. 
Elijah also was somebody who went through an extremely deep depression. Even though he had seen everything he had seen. I know how many of us, how many of you struggle with depression. And it is so easy to get locked and stuck into this is never going to get better. And I can't believe this is happening. And what is wrong? It's so easy. And it's real. But God doesn't give up on even depressed people. God even uses, even when we get stuck in a situation where I cannot even begin to understand how God could ever be working in this, that doesn't mean God isn't working in this and can't use that. Because he can, and he does. You hang in there and walk with your God. He will get you through the other side, oh Christian. You hear me? All right, back into the actual sermon. Sorry. How does this story match Paul's argument that if you think God's done with Israel, you're just wrong. Here's how. Paul's saying, so you're looking around the church and you see that almost all of the Israelites, all of the Jews reject Jesus and that makes you convinced that God has moved on from Israel and is done with Israel? Paul says, well, open your Bible. It's always been like that with God in Israel. Here's a story where Elijah thought he was the only one who believed in God left on the planet. And God had to say, oh, no, 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 you're wrong, Elijah. I will always keep for myself. There's 7,000 people in Israel who have never worshipped that false god. Why? Because I will make sure I'm going to save Israel. Because I promised. He could have told lots of other stories. Is there ever any stories about the people of Israel not being good people and rejecting God and, and what do you, you want to talk about sacrificing their own children? They did that. Was God done with them then? No. Paul's saying God's not even done with Israel when they reject the sacrifice of his son. God promised. So now court is adjourned. Two witnesses is all Paul needs. And now next, Paul says, the more things change, the more they stay the same. He said, I'm still here. He go back further. Elijah was wrong. God kept Israelites believing in him for himself. And so then look how verse 5 starts. So in the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way as God has always dealt with Israel when Israel rejected God. At the present time in Paul's day, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Paul happens to know one of them very well. It's him. God is going to make sure there's always some believing Israelites on earth. Now, what kind of Israelites does God choose to save? Does he choose the bestest ones? The most moral ones? The, most are, the, the ones who are almost are so good, I can't help but save them? No! God chooses people like Paul, who hate Jesus and hate Christians. In just a few minutes, I'm going to show you a testimony of someone from our day that hated Christians 
and hated Jesus and is now a completed Jew. Paul says, it's the same way right now. And it's always by grace. It's no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. God doesn't choose the good ones, the moral ones. God just chooses to like force some, we would say Jews today, force some Israelis to believe in Jesus because God promised there always would be. And then Paul lets us know Israel today is just made up of two groups of people. Israel um, is either the remnant who are saved by grace or the elect or they are the rest. Israel is made up of the elect and the rest. The elect are people who God has just made sure a certain number of Jews always believe. And there is the rest of Israel who are hardened in their unbelief, do not believe in Jesus, will not go to heaven when they die unless they repent and believe in Jesus because that's the only way anyone is saved. And then Paul just gives a couple of verses that say, God said this was coming. He quotes a couple of verses from the Old Testament. God said he was going to give them eyes that wouldn't see the truth, ears that wouldn't hear the truth. They've heard, they've had the message delivered, they won't believe. They're hardened in their unbelief and they're going to they're going to bend their backs continually under the weight of trying to be good enough that God will accept them on their own goodness. And that's the passage. Now we move on to this question. Why should we care about any of that? Like who, who cares that probably after we are dead and gone, someday God is going to force Israel miraculously to believe? I think we should care for two reasons. First, God's dealings with Israel teach us what God is like. At what point will God say, I've had it up to here with Israel and all those promises I made to Israel? Forget it. I'm going to give those promises to someone else. How bad does it have to get before God will say that? He's never going to say that. What does that tell us about God? That he's slow to anger. That he's abounding in loving kindness and forgiveness. Do you know how important that is for you and me to know? It's vital. If God's not like that, if God can get to the point with Israel, even though I know, I told you Israel, I promised I would save Israel, but forget it. You've gone too far this time. I am done. Then how do you know he won't do that with you and me? We don't. That's why Paul wants to make sure we get this. Has God promised to save you? Has God promised to save you. The only way you can answer that question, yes, is if you have believed in what his son did for you at the cross. If you believe in Jesus, God has promised to save you. And God will save you, not because you deserve to be saved. No, 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 no. Nor me either. If you deserve to be saved, then Paul said in this passage, then grace wouldn't be grace. That'd be Paul just, or God just giving you what you deserve. 
God promised to save you based on what he did, not what you do. That's why it's important to know God will never give up on Israel because then it helps us understand God will never give up on me. When I blow it, when I sin, when I act like he's not real. Unfortunately for Israel, individuals within Israel don't have the promise they're going to heaven no matter what. They have to believe in Jesus. But God's promises never change. By way of conclusion this morning, and actually, Cedric, I need to tell you to go ahead and end the, in one second, you're going to have to end the stream. If you're watching this on Facebook, I'm going to show a video. Go to I Found Shalom. Google that, I Found Shalom, and you can find lots of these videos. I just don't have the license to show this over Facebook, and the, the Facebook bots will cancel our video if I show this. So, said, go ahead and end the live stream. Bye, everyone out there. Uh, and uh, actually, let me, let me pray for us and let, give him a chance to shut that down, and then I'll show you the video I told you about. Father God, thank you so much for your faithfulness to sinful people. It's like you've used Israel to show us how faithful you are toward wickedly sinful people who reject you because we are that people sometimes. God, uh, thank you that you will save us in spite of ourselves. Thank you that you save us not based on anything we have done, but what, the Je- what Jesus has done, what we will celebrate in communion here in a minute. And thank you for your sovereignty in continuing to save uh, Jews who don't believe in Jesus, but you have promised. It reminds us, the video like we're going to watch right now just reminds us that you will always continue to keep your promises. We love you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is, gonna, this is a video from uh, an organization uh, called I Found Shalom. You can look up plenty of those videos. There, a lot of them are great. This is a man who, his job was like a forensic investigator where he's somebody that goes and finds bodies and figures out what happened to him and stuff like that. So when he talks about that, you'll uh, 